Good afternoon, everyone. Nice day today. Not bad for first week of July or January. Yeah, well, it's not bad for the first week of July either. But <laughs> but it's not July yet. <laughs> Today for this sermon, I want to continue in our series on the history of apostasy. You might be wondering why I've chosen to spend so much time on the subject of apostasy. One might reason apostasy is a depressing and negative subject, and certainly it can be depressing to focus on the near universal apostasy that has gripped mankind for the last 6,000 years. So... It isn't something we would want to focus on all the time, exclusive of other subjects discussed in the Bible, but it's also not something we ought to ignore and certainly not something we should be ignorant of. However you might view the subject of, of the history of apostasy, it is extremely important. And it is a subject which has been largely neglected. It's a subject that that is uh, seldom, if ever, discussed in most churches, and, and usually, if and when it is discussed, it often is not addressed accurately or with full understanding. In fact, I was reading something uh, as I was preparing this sermon, which talked about was talking discussing apostasy, and their their definition of apostasy apostasy included keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day rather than Sunday. And so a lot of churches, if, if they ever discussed apostasy, that's the kind of thing they would be talking about. Why should you want to know about the history of apostasy? You might ask yourself, and I'll give you seven reasons why it would be helpful to know about the history of apostasy. Number one, a great deal of the Bible is devoted to discussing apostasy in one way or another, both from a historical and a prophetic viewpoint, and that includes both the Old and New Testaments. Without comprehending what the Bible says about the subject of apostasy, your knowledge of the Bible is incomplete and a vital dimension in spiritual understanding is missing. Secondly, the history of apostasy is basic to an understanding of mankind's relationship with God historically. Third, the history of apostasy helps explain why the world is full of evil and why God allows it to be so. Fourth, it's essential to us as Christians to understand what apostasy is and how it separates us from God. Fifth, what the Bible and history reveal about apostasy serves as a warning to every one of us not to follow the wide and popular path of the world that leads to destruction, but rather to follow the narrow and difficult path that leads to life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, or Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13, Matthew 7 and verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, 
because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening or ravenous wolves. So Jesus boiled it down to two ways of life. One, the broad popular way that most people are going. And secondly, the more restricted way of life that leads to life eternal. And then immediately he warns us about false prophets, people coming to deceive and devour the flock. To, in effect, destroy mankind. Number six, the history of apostasy helps us put in perspective not only the apostasies of the past, but apostasies which will occur in the future, including the apostasy prophesied in Daniel 11, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation chapters 13 and 17. The seventh, Understanding the history of, apost- of apostasy can help us recognize apostasy when we see it so that we may avoid being enticed and deceived by it. So those are, in my view, all good reasons to discuss this subject as, as uh, unpleasant sometimes as it is to contemplate these things. It is something we need to understand and be educated about. In the last sermon in this series, sermon number four, we discussed the history of apostasy among the Jews leading up to and during the time of Jesus Christ and the calamity that resulted for the nation. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the apostasies that occurred in the early church during the time of the apostles and immediately following that era. Anyone who has the idea that everything went smoothly during the apostolic age and that the church was always unified and there were no serious heresies or apostasies is badly mistaken. There are a number of allusions to apostasies in the New Testament that were occurring at that time. There were ongoing apostasies that the New Testament writers fought against and warned about. Early in the history of the church, a great persecution arose upon the heels of the martyrdom of Stephen. The Jewish leaders were intent on persecuting the church, and they had murdered Stephen, who was a deacon in the church. And directly on the heels of that, there was an effort to persecute others in the church and leaders of the church with the exception of the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria as we read in Acts chapter 8 in Acts 8 and verse 1 Saul was consenting to his death that is the death of Stephen and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That doesn't necessarily mean all the members, 
were scattered, but especially the leaders and likely some of the members as well. But it's evident from the context that not all of them were uh, scattered, through, uh, but uh, they were being uh, being uh, sought out and persecuted. Goes on to say in verse two, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, Philip was a, a deacon in the church, and so these people that were scattered, probably, as I said, mostly leaders within the church were uh, preaching the word of God wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ, and the people with one accord gave, gave heed to those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud, a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen on none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me also this power, but on whomsoever I lay hands, he, that uh, on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So we have the record here in Acts chapter 8 of this Simon of Samaria <clears throat> who was using sorcery to influence people and uh, who 
tried to purchase, essentially purchase uh, an office in the church as an apostle. Now this Simon that we read about here became known as Simon Magus, which is Latin for Simon the Magician. Here's what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about this Simon. Quote, Simon Magus, Latin or English Simon the Magician or the Sorcerer, practitioner of magical arts who probably came from Gita, a village in biblical Samaria. Simon, according to the New Testament account in Acts of the Apostles, after becoming a Christian, offered to purchase from the apostles Peter and John the supernatural power of transmitting the Holy Spirit, thus giving rise to the term simony as the buying or selling of sacred things or ecclesiastical office. Later references in certain early Christian writings identify him as the founder of post-Christian Gnosticism, a dualist religious sect advocating salvation through secret knowledge, and as the architect archetypal heretic of the Christian church. End of quote. Now, we might take note of this word Gnosticism, which is mentioned in this article concerning Simon Magus. It says, early Christian writings identify him as the founder of post-Christian Gnosticism. Many, if not all, of the apostasies of the New Testament era and beyond involved Gnosticism, which essentially is simply a term that denotes various doctrines that blended biblical themes with pagan philosophy and religion. That's In essence, that's what Gnosticism is, at least in respect to how it's used in relation to the Bible. It was the blending of biblical themes with pagan philosophy and religion. And a number of Gnostic sects arose in the New Testament era and following the New Testament era. And these Gnostics called themselves Christians. They often had their own assemblies, apart from the assemblies of faithful Christians. Christian leaders who ostensibly opposed Gnosticism, especially in the second century and beyond, were nevertheless often themselves subverted by false teachings that led to the abandoning of Scripture for beliefs fostered by false religion and pagan philosophy. As a result, for example, in the second century, they abandoned the Sabbath for Sunday. They began to keep Easter in place of Passover and gradually adopted many other unbiblical ideas such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the immortal soul, and so forth, doctrines that are associated with pagan worship and pagan philosophy. Simon Magus was a Samaritan, That is, he was from the region of Samaria in northern Palestine. He was born in that area, and as we saw when they went to 
preach at the city of Samaria. He was in the audience there. Samaria was the capital of the kingdom of Israel after the nation became divided after Solomon died. And the Israelites, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes that comprised the nation of Israel after the United Kingdom was divided, those tribes were sent into captivity because they blended pagan idolatry with the worship of Yahweh, which is a practice that God condemns. In other words, they were practicing uh, the same basic idea as the Gnostics were promoting. It wasn't called Gnosticism at that time, but it was in, in effect the same thing. When the northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians, the Assyrians brought Gentile peoples into the area that the northern tribes had occupied in northern Palestine, and uh, that land came to be called Samaria after the name of the capital. It was not only a city, but it was a region at the time of Christ. And here's what we read about the captivity of the northern tribes. It says in 2 Kings 17, beginning with verse 24, 2 Kings 17, verse 24, it says, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from uh, Ava, from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So we see Samaria here being referred to as the region where the ten tribes had formerly dwelt. And these Gentiles from Mesopotamia were brought in to populate the country. And goes on in verse 25, so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord, therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Why they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, the nations which you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land, therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, carry there one of the priests whom you brought from there and let them go and dwell there and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then came one of the priests. Now, I might mention that uh, Israel, in their idolatrous way, continued to claim to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the eternal God. But they were uh, mixing his worship with the worship of idols. And it was a false worship. So... Uh, one of the priests, in verse 28, says, Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. 
However, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelled. In other words, the people from these different uh, ethnic groups brought their gods with them and they put these idols in the various high places where they had come to live. And in verse 30, it says, The men of Babylon made Sekoth benoth and the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sevarvites burnt their children in fire to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord and made to themselves the lowest of the priests of the high places which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. So it says they feared the Lord. In other words, they were using the name of Yahweh. The Lord is translated here from the Hebrew Yahweh. And so they used the name of God, which was associated with that area in the minds of the Gentiles. And uh, yet they continued to worship their false gods. It says in verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from there. To this day, they do after their, the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and the commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord, or Yahweh, the Eternal, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him you shall fear and him you shall worship and to him you shall do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, neither shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did after their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they to this day. Now, this phrase, so do they to this day, probably refers to the time that the Bible was edited by Ezra and the Sophereme after the return from the captivity of Judah so, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, two or three centuries later. So this was a, a practice that had uh, been going on for uh, probably centuries after... Uh, the book of Kings was written and then later on edited. Verse 
or after at least the uh, people were brought into this area of Samaria. And they eventually came to be called Samaritans. And uh, during the time of Jesus, they were still there. They were called Samaritans. And they were still continuing these practices of blending pagan worship with God's name and certain biblical themes. And they were doing this up to the time of Jesus Christ and beyond. Following, I'm quoting from a, a, a book entitled The People That History Forgot by Ernest L. Martin in chapter 3. And this book is mainly about the Samaritans. And uh, he says, quote, The Samaritans commonly combined paganism with teachings from the Bible. They customarily displayed biblical items in their synagogues. This is shown in the remains of what are considered two Samaritan synagogues in good enough's pictures number, and he names the pictures in this uh, book he's referring to, uh, and both of these synagogues displayed menorahs on their mosaic floors. Menorah is a candlestick. And uh, says these synagogues displayed menorahs on their the mosaic floors. This was, this was uh, supposed to be a, a uh, <clears throat> image of the candlesticks that were in the temple that... Uh, was made by Solomon before that in the in the tabernacle before the temple was built and the the uh, Samaritans eventually built their own temple and evidently copied uh, it was copied at least in some respects after the temple of Solomon and evidently they used these candlesticks in their temple and they had in some of their synagogues, at least these two synagogues, images of uh, menorahs. He goes on to say, as we will come to see, this was not allowed in ordinary Jewish synagogues or in Jewish homes in this early period. What he's referring to here is that among the Jews at the time of Christ, any kind of uh, images, even decorative images in uh, uh, to be displayed for religious purposes, and sometimes for any purpose, were frowned on by the Jews. And they, in their synagogues, as far as archaeological excavations have determined, in that era, that's the Christian era, there were no images of any kind in Jewish synagogues, nor were they used in most Jewish homes at that time in, in Palestine, the Jewish people that uh, were in Judea and Palestine at that time. This book, The People That History Forgot, goes on to say, quote, Samaritans also did one other thing besides using biblical symbols like the menorah. They were also used to blending pagan symbols, even pagan gods, with their biblical symbols. As evidence for this, there are the coins minted by 
Herod in his first three years when he governed from Samaria in the heartland of the Samaritans. On them were depicted pagan ceremonial vessels such as the tripod and lebus symbols of the worship of Apollo, along with their temple dedicated to Yahweh, which was located on Mount Gerizim. So they, uh, interrupting again, they were, they were using uh, on their coinage The, uh, they were using a image of their temple, which was supposedly dedicated to Yahweh, along with pagan images associated with, with the worship of the Greek god Apollo. The author goes on to say, quote, These Herodian coins are unlike those at the time which were associated with Jerusalem. The Jerusalem coins showed no pagan designs, and later in the third century of our era, three coins were found in Neapolis and Samaria. These later coins reveal the continuation of pagan themes among the Samaritans. One of these coins showed a Roman goddess, another a decan, which is one of the 36 deities in astrology, and the third displayed Zeus in the scene of what appears to be the binding of Isaac, which of course, would be a biblical theme, end quote. So, blending the worship of the God of the Bible with the worship of idols and false gods was something that occurred on an ongoing basis in Samaria. Just as it had in Israel, before, the, before they were sent into captivity for their idolatry, as had occurred in Judah, before they were sent into captivity for their apostasy and rebellion and idolatry. But one of the things the Jews seemed to learn, at least for a time, following their captivity, was not to blend God's worship in, a, in an explicit way with the worship of idols. Now, later on they, they uh, forgot the, that lesson, but it was still fresh with them at the time of Jesus Christ. We find more about Simon Magus and the Samaritans in some of the writings of the so-called Christian apologists in the second century especially the writers Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. In the so-called first apology of Justin Martyr, which was addressed to the Romans, Justin wrote, quote, There was a Samaritan Simon, a native of the village called Gito, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of ma magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. He was considered a god, and as a god was honored by you with a statue, which statue was erected on the river Tiber between the two bridges. Now, the, the, the Tiber River runs through Rome. He's talking about this uh, statue that was erected in honor of Simon Magus in the city of Rome. 
So he says here, going on with the quote, he says, between the two bridges and bore this inscription in the language of Rome, Simone Dio Sancto, to Simon the Holy God, which is the translation from Latin to English, to Simon the Holy God. And almost, going on with the quote, almost all the Samaritans and a few even of other nations worship him and acknowledge him as the first God. And a woman, Helena, who went about with him at that time and who had formerly been a prostitute, they say is the first idea generated by him. And a man, Menander, also a Samaritan of the count of Caparatia, a disciple of Simon and inspired by devils, we know to have deceived many while he was in Antioch by his magical art. He persuaded those who adhered to him that they should never die. And even now there are some living who hold this opinion of his. And there's Marcion, a man of Pontus, who is even at this day alive and teaching his disciples to believe in some other God greater than the Creator. And he, by the aid of the, de the devils, has caused many of every nation to speak blasphemies and to deny that God is the maker of this universe and to assert that some other being greater than he has done greater works. And all who take their opinions from these men are, as we said before, are, as we uh, before said, called Christians, just as also those who do not agree with the philosophers and their doctrines have yet in common with them the name of philosophers given to them. And this was uh, written uh, according to uh, what Justin Martyr said in his uh, in his first apology. He's, this this was written 150 years following the birth of Jesus Christ. So uh, it was written somewhere close to 150. A.D., a few years before 150 A.D., probably about 146 A.D. Now, Justin goes on to remark that unlike some others who identified themselves as Christians, these Gnostic heretics, quote, are neither persecuted nor put to death by you, at least on account of, of their opinions. So the Gnostic heretics were not persecuted by the Romans. Now you might ask why? Why why what well, the main reason that Christians were being persecuted at that time by the Roman government was because they would not acknowledge Caesar as God. They would not participate in the Roman religion. And so they were persecuted. But the Gnostics were not particular about such things and 
readily acknowledged various gods, even worshipped Simon, Magus is a god, and they were not persecuted. Another writer in the second century who wrote about Irena who wrote about Simon Magus is Irenaeus, and Irenaeus said in his uh, work against heresies, quote, "This man then was glorified by many as if he were a god, and he taught that it was himself who appeared among the Jews as the son." but descended in Samaria as the father while he came to other nations in the character of the Holy Spirit. He represented himself in a word as being the loftiest of all powers, that is, the being who is the father over all, and he allowed himself to be called by whatever title men were pleased to address him." End quote. Irenaeus goes on to state that the followers of Simon Magus worshipped images of Simon and his paramour, Helena. And he went on to say, quote, They have a name derived from Simon, the author of these most impious doctrines, being called Simonians, and from them knowledge falsely so called received its beginning, as one may learn even from their own assertions. Then Irenaeus said of other Gnostic heretics who claim to be Christians, quote, they also possess images, some of them painted and others formed from different kinds of material. While they maintain that a likeness of Christ was made by Pilate at the time when Jesus lived among them. They crowned these images and set them up along with the images of the philosophers of the world, that is to say, with the images of Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle and the rest. They have also other modes of honoring these images after the same manner of the Gentiles, end quote. So here we have people in the first and second centuries A.D., who were worshiping a human being as God, who were making images of various um, personalities that they thought of as godlike, including images of Jesus Christ or that they claim to be images of Christ as well as images of uh, Simon Magus and philosophers and so forth and they were worshipping these images and calling themselves Christians. The letter to the Colossians we find in the scripture was written at least partly to combat Gnostic heresies. We read in Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Colossians 2 and verse 1, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, 
that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the, of the Father and of Christ. Now notice what Paul is talking about here. He is, he is uh, expressing the desire that the church that he is writing to be richly filled with understanding, with the uh, understanding of the mystery of God the Father and of Christ the knowledge of God the Father and of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now remember that Gnosticism, the, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And uh, they claim to have secret knowledge, special knowledge that made them uh, more spiritual and exalted above other people. And they claimed that that secret knowledge was, was uh, the path to salvation. And here, Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the Father and Jesus Christ. In other words, if we want to have true wisdom and knowledge, we need to come to know the Father and Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In verse 8 of Colossians 2, Verse 8, he continues, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. He's talking about the rudiments of the world as a reference to idolatrous practices that were, that were commonplace in the world. And traditions of men, that is, uh, philosophical ideas and traditions that are manufactured by human beings. In verse 9, he says, For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this is one of the things that the Gnostics denied, is that, that uh, God actually dwelt on the earth in a bodily form and uh, that... Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh. That's something that typically they denied. And it says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In other words, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have all you need for salvation. You don't need some to be part of some secret uh, cult where they have some supposedly special knowledge that they can impart 
to you separate from the word of God. These statements go to the heart of some Gnostic teachings in which it was claimed, among other things, that Jesus Christ is something less than fully God. Paul said, in him that is in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Going on in verse 18 of Colossians 2, Paul said, let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. The early church faced a major apostasy that is discussed in the book of Galatians as well. The book of Galatians is probably written about 49 AD or sometime during 49 AD. And it was uh, written in response to an apostasy. In Galatians 1 and verse 6, Galatians 1 and verse 6, Paul said to the Galatians, the Galatian church, he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. In other words, they were becoming apostates, turning away from the truth of the gospel. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now this particular apostasy, the one addressed in the book of Galatians, involved a teaching that Gentile converts to Christianity had to be physically circumcised to have salvation. And they also had to adhere to Jewish traditional law, or at least the laws that were um, associated with this, these apostate leaders, their, their ideas of right and wrong. And along with this was a teaching that one could earn salvation through his own efforts alone, apart from godly faith. Among the teachings of the Jewish rabbis at that time was this teaching, quote, it is in the power of each holy to overcome sin and to gain life by study and good works, end quote. In other words, you don't need any particular special relationship with, with uh, Jesus Christ or God. You can overcome sin on your own through study and good works. So these were doctrinal ideas that are 
corrosive to the true faith. And there may well have been esoteric teachings related to Gnosticism also involved in the Galatian heresy because at that time the Jews also were being influenced, many of them, by pagan philosophies. And some of these same ideas that were that were influencing the uh, Gnostics among the Christians. In a letter to the Corinthians, Paul warned against following false teachers who claimed to be ministers of Christ, but who taught a false gospel. The Corinthian church also was being affected by such false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. What he means here is, is that they uh, were, at least some of them, more than ready to accept a different gospel and a different spirit and so forth. and a message that was contrary to that which had been taught by Paul and the other apostles. He says, I consider I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. These were men coming in claiming that they were apostles. And uh, going on, he says in verse 6, even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to, uh, to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia, which is a part of Greece. Going on, he says, why? Because I do not love you, question mark. God knows, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves 
into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. So in the Corinthian church, there were people who had come in teaching doctrines contrary to the doctrine taught by Christ and by Paul and other of, of the true apostles, and yet claiming that they were superior and that they had authority to do these things, to teach these doctrines and these falsehoods. Now, he doesn't give us a lot of specific information on what, what was being taught uh, there, but given uh, other information that we have, it's likely that it included some of the Gnostic doctrines that were being uh, spread around. Jesus had warned in Matthew 24 and verse 5, many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. In other words, many would come claiming authority from Jesus Christ, saying that he is the Christ, claiming to be Christians, and yet they would deceive many. So just because a person claims to be a Christian, claims to be a Christian minister or even an apostle, it does not mean he actually is telling you the truth. Jesus said, many will come in my name. Not just a few, but many. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, which has a special relevance to the era of the apostles in the first century A.D., in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, he said to the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So this is a reference to the fact that there were many people coming along in that in the very first century of the church claiming to be apostles, falsely claiming to be apostles. And the, 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 tr the brethren who wanted to remain faithful had to sort out the wheat from the chaff. They had to figure out who was a true apostle and who was lying. And this was in the very, very early stages of the existence of the New Testament church. So the true apostles had their hands full trying to help people avoid being misled and deceived by these false teachers. Peter warned the church of heretical leaders teaching false doctrines, especially practicing and promoting licentious or lawless behavior. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, he said, there were also false prophets among the people, 
even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. He said many will follow their destructive ways. Going on in verse 12 of 2 Peter 2, Peter wrote, These, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. There are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, with the church having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, there were a variety of teachings among the, the uh, Gnostic teachers of that era. And some of them taught extreme asceticism, and some of them taught that if you had this secret knowledge, it didn't really matter what you did. You could indulge in any kind of corrupt behavior and that would not affect your salvation. So the most extreme forms of, of wickedness were in, indulged in by some of these groups. And they were doing it, claiming to be Christians, doing these things that Paul or Peter referred to here. It says they allure them through the lust of the flesh through lewdness. And while they promise them liberty, they are slaves of corruption. In Second Peter chapter 3, in verse 15, Peter wrote, 
consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scripture. So even in that era, people were using or misusing Paul's epistles to teach false doctrines, putting a false spin on things that Paul wrote. And that is still going on and is very common today among people who claim to be Christians, Christian ministers and so forth, using Paul's epistles as a basis for teaching lawlessness, claiming that the laws of God, the commandments of God are done away with and the Christians are not obligated to keep God's commandments. Peter said, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So many people, people, often sincere people, have been misled by false teachers using the epistles of Paul, using other scriptures to mislead people, teaching them to disobey the commandments of God, teaching them to indulge in idolatrous practices. Jude warned about false teachers who would turn the grace of God into license to sin. And this is essentially the same type of thing that Peter was referring to here because Paul wrote about grace and faith and salvation and evidently probably before the ink was dry on what he had written, People were perverting his teachings and turning grace into license to sin. Jude wrote in Jude verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed too long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord and our Lord, uh, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They were denying God with their false teachings, even though they were using the name of God. Jesus warned about false teachers who reject the commandments of God. And when you are analyzing a teaching or trying to figure out if someone is, is uh, truly representing Christ or teaching the truth, 
you need to take note of their ideas about the commandments of God and uh, and keeping the commandments of God or not. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, those people who were ministering in the name of Jesus Christ and yet practiced lawlessness. John in his epistles emphasized obedience to the commandments as the manifestation of the love which defines godly character. John wrote in John 14 and verse 21, John 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, <clears throat> he's quoting Jesus Christ here, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus according to John, tells us that the test of our love for God is whether or not we keep His commandments. And if we love God, if we truly love God, we will, we will uh, show that love through the keeping of His commandments. We read in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 2, 1 John 5, and verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Many people, of course, regard the Ten Commandments as that harsh law of the Old Testament that Christ came to, to get rid of. But according to the scriptures, keeping the commandments is a manifestation of the love of God. Some scholars have regarded Gnosticism as the Hellenization of Christianity. As discussed earlier, it is a blending of pagan philosophy and religion with biblical themes and in the process perverting the scriptures. Even though what came to be called Orthodox Christian belief was at first ostensibly opposed to Gnosticism, in reality it embraced it. Much of what was heresy in the first century gradually came to be accepted by the dominant church that claimed to be Christian. In a footnote in a chapter of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, is the statement that early Gnosticism represented, quote, a result 
which was only obtained by a gradual process in Catholic Christianity. In other words, the popular Christianity which emerged through the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries and beyond was a Gnostic Christianity. In other words, it wasn't really Christianity at all, but it was a false Christianity that embraced the same ideas, doctrines, and practices as the Gnostics that were opposed by the original apostles. In terms of numbers, in what is labeled as Christianity, apostasy triumphed, as it virtually always has in the world in general. The world's theologians may have some technical knowledge of certain aspects of the Bible, but by and large, they do not fully abide in God's word and have failed to grasp its fundamental teachings. Many of them, many of the world's theologians are openly hostile to the Bible's teachings, no less than the early Gnostics were. We cannot rely on human reasoning and philosophical ideas for guidance in understanding God or what God would have us do. Rather, we have to rely on God's word, the Bible, and we need to strive to correctly understand what it actually teaches with the help of God's spirit. Any other path is a path to heresy and apostasy. Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, John 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If we are to be the disciples of Jesus Christ, truly his disciples, and if we are to know the truth, we must abide in God's word.